Last week, John Micah was, was preaching on Romans 8. We had met before he, he preached, and he said, Les, how do you even begin to touch Romans chapter 8? I mean, you could preach for an entire year on that one chapter, and, and, and John Micah was right. Romans 8 is this kind of crescendo of Paul's theology, and within one, that, that one chapter is so much that he packs into it about who Jesus is and what Jesus has done, and then more specifically, the giving of the Spirit and what the Spirit is doing. And so he focused on the work of the Spirit last week as we were working through that text. One of the things I love about Romans 8, like I said, it is Paul's ultimate chapter of all the chapters that he wrote, as he really does talk about what God has done for us through Jesus and by the power of the Holy Spirit. But if you wanted to go away with a message from Romans chapter 8, all you have to do is read verse 1 and verses, the last two verses of the text uh, of that chapter. I mean, if you will just look at those three verses, you will leave with some of the most amazing theology and kind of the heart of what Paul's trying to get across. Romans 8 verse 1. Passage that John began with last week. There is there, uh, therefore, there is now no condemnation for those who are in Christ Jesus. Keith Parker's here today. Keith, always good to have you. Keith, I have heard, is fond of saying, when you see a therefore, you need to ask, what is it there for? And, and that's always a good question. But what Paul is doing here is saying, listen, coming out of chapter 8, where he was talking about living under a system of law, the Torah, of where he says, in my mind I knew what I needed to do, but in my body I wasn't able to do it, and that which I didn't want to do, that's what I ended up doing. What a wretched man I am. Who's going to save me? And the answer is Jesus. Jesus is the answer of this lack of security, uh, of the fact that we are now in Christ Jesus through faith. Baptism brings us into that relationship with Jesus. Romans 6, beginning in verse 3. And so we're now in Christ Jesus, and there is no condemnation. Brethren, we need to let that sink in. We need to let that soak in. You know, we got Thanksgiving and Christmas coming up, and I don't know your favorite part of the holidays, but one of my favorite parts are the desserts. I love Thanksgiving and Christmas desserts. And I especially love those cakes of where, you know, the person who makes the cake pokes holes in it and then pours the sauce so that it's not just on top, but it seeps down and soaks throughout the cake. This is one of those soaking verses. I mean, we need to let it soak into our soul. There's no condemnation as long as we're in a relationship with Jesus Christ. doesn't mean we're not going to sin. But it does mean that if we do sin, we have an advocate who's interceding for us, and his name is Jesus. Verse 2, he goes on to talk about the role of the Spirit. Because through Christ Jesus, and I love the way Paul does this, he's a Jew, he believes in the Torah, and so he takes the Greek word for Torah, nomos, and he says, because through Christ Jesus, the Torah of the Spirit, the Torah of the Spirit has set me free from the, the Torah of sin and death. This coming of the Spirit that we receive when we're baptized, this presence of this helper that John calls the paraclete, the one who comes alongside of us, he's there because once we're in Jesus Christ, he's going to work toward making us into the likeness 
of Jesus Christ. And so you get this beautiful reflection on who we are and what Jesus is doing through the Spirit as long as we're in Him. And then verse 18, Paul says, listen, let me just kind of tell you where we go from here. He says, I don't consider any of the present sufferings. And let me tell you that when it came to sufferings, Paul knew sufferings. He knew beatings. He knew stonings. He knew imprisonments. He knew shipwrecks. I mean, Paul knew what it was to suffer. And he says, none of the present sufferings are worth comparing with the glory that's going to be revealed in us. And then Paul begins to talk about how that God is in the process of making all things new. He even goes to creation itself. And he says, we know that the whole creation is groaning right now. As in the pains of childbirth. Why? Because creation is looking forward to what God's going to do in you and me. And what is he going to do in us? Look at what he says. Not only so, but we ourselves who have this Holy Spirit, the first fruits of it, we groan inwardly as we eagerly await our adoption as children of God. Now you say, well, I thought we became children of God when we were baptized. We did. But it's not complete. The adoption papers are not signed until the resurrection. It's in the resurrection when God gives us a new body, resurrects that body, that old decaying body, and makes it an immortal body that the creation itself begins to celebrate because not only are we made new, but creation itself is reborn. And so he ends chapter 8 with this incredible praise. You can almost see him as he's standing there and he says, listen, I'm convinced death, life, angels, demons, present, future, any power there is, height, depth. In fact, nothing in creation can separate us from the love of God found in Jesus Christ. No condemnation in him and nothing that can separate us from his love. And Paul says, that is what salvation through faith is all about. But then the tone dramatically changes. Paul could do that. You turn over to 2 Corinthians and you read 2 Corinthians and you see Paul up high, you see Paul down low. You see Paul celebrating, you see Paul suffering. I mean, 2 Corinthians is one of those you're like, whoa, man, who wrote this and how many days did he write it over? And I, and I think it was probably over several days, if not weeks. As, boy, sometimes he's high, sometimes he's low. Well, here in Romans chapter 9, Paul turns downward in a dramatic way. Now, most people, when they come to Romans 9 through 11, they just skip it. You know, I, I refer to it as practicing the Passover. They just pass over the text and go on. And, and, and a lot of people will tell you that Romans 9 through 11 are some of the most difficult writings of Paul found in all of Scripture. But here's the problem. The problem with most people is they're trying to read Romans 9 through 11 with their heads. You can't read it with your heads. You've got to read it with your heart. And you've got to read it, I mean, with the emotions that Paul dictates it with. Paul's 
writing through a dictator. He's, he has a person who's actually writing the text down as he's dictating it to him. And the writer is, is, by the way, his name is Tertius. He actually makes comments in chapter 16. He says, by the way, I'm the one who wrote this epistle. I send my greeting. And I can't help but think that Paul gets to chapter 9. And he sits down. And all at once he just kind of opens up his heart. I think he's crying. I think tears are falling from his face. And I think we miss it sometimes. We, Tony read this a few moments ago. I suspect you didn't even notice. Look at the opening verses. As he deals with this conflict, this Jewish-Gentile conflict, who is just eating at him. I mean, Paul is a Jew, a Pharisee of Pharisees. And yet God comes along and he calls him to be, of all things, an apostle to the Gentiles. I mean, you would think of all people who would be an apostle to the Jews, it would be the ultimate trained Jewish rabbi, the apostle Paul. But no, God says, I want you to go to the Gentiles. And Paul, boy, he suffered over that. He, he loved his own people, but he has a different commission than Peter does and John does and James, the half-brother of Jesus. And so as he begins, he says, I want to speak the truth in Christ. Now, by the way, you always get suspicious of preachers that start a, 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 a message this way. I don't know how many times I've heard preachers say, now, y'all, I'm fixing to tell you a true story, which makes you think all the other stories he's been telling is a lie, right? I mean, oh, you've got to emphasize this is true. Well, Paul emphasizes it's true, but look at the emphasis. I speak the truth in Christ. I am not lying. My conscience confirms it. Through the Holy Spirit. In other words, he calls Jesus as a witness. He calls the Holy Spirit as a witness. Paul's fixing to tell us something that is absolutely at the very soul of who he is. And look at what he says. I have great sorrow, unceasing anguish in my heart. That's why I think he's crying. And then listen to what he says. For I wish... I wish that I, myself, were cursed and cut off from Christ. Y'all hear what he's saying? You can't read this and not, not tune your heart into it. Paul is saying, I wished I was lost. I wish that my eternal destiny was was." being rejected by God, you know, going in, in, into that lake that burns with fire and brimstone, John will describe in Revelation chapter 20. I wish that was my destiny. If my family, my race, my people could come to know Jesus. N.T. Wright helped me with this more than anyone else. N.T. Wright, in his biography of Paul, says that one of the things we miss, miss about Paul, Paul, when he was converted, uh, was probably converted sometime around 33 A.D. Church had been in existence maybe two, maybe three years. Paul's converted. Paul, if you remember, according to Galatians, he goes and then spends three years in Arabia, or what we would call the Sinai Peninsula. 
It's where Moses went. It's where Elijah went. Paul goes there and stays three years. And I personally think it's three years with Jesus. Paul would oftentimes say that he did not receive his gospel from anyone else. Received it directly from Jesus. When? I think it was during those three years he's in Arabia. He comes back according to Galatians. He goes to Jerusalem and the Jerusalem church basically rejects him. Peter brings him into his house and Peter basically says, you need to go back to Tarsus. And so Paul leaves Jerusalem where he had been trained under the feet of Gamaliel, goes back to Tarsus and there disappears for 10 years. 10 years. And E.T. Wright asked an incredible question. What was he doing? What was going on in his life? How was he processing what had just happened to him? And he makes a suggestion that made all the sense in the world to me. You know, oftentimes the question is asked, was Paul ever married? We never read of him speaking of a wife. He claims that he could have a wife. And I'm personally of the opinion that when he went from Tarsus to Jerusalem to train as a young man, as a teenager, I personally believed he was already engaged. You see, Jewish parents would arrange marriages quite early for their kids. And I have to believe that before Paul was ever sent to Jerusalem, his parents had already arranged for a young lady there in Tarsus to become his future wife. They had signed the papers. The engagement was there, just waiting for Paul to come back. Except for Paul, it didn't, he didn't come back in a couple of years. In fact, it was four or five, six years that he came back. And of course, the question is, did that girl wait for him? I mean, or did her parents finally say, we don't know where Paul is, we're going to go ahead and give her to someone else. She's getting on up in age, you know. But but I've oftentimes thought, what if she did wait? What was it like when Paul stepped off that boat at Tarsus? And he goes to see his mom and dad. His mom and dad opened the door. Son, where you been? I haven't phoned me in four years. What's happened? And by the way, that young lady's still waiting for you. And then Paul begins to tell a story about seeing Jesus on the road to Damascus. And I don't know if you've ever thought about this, but have you ever noticed in all of Paul's letters, in all the book of Acts, everything about Paul, Paul never mentions his mom and dad? Never mentions them. I mean, he talks about Timothy and his faith and how the faith came through his mother and through his grandmother. Not so about his own family. All Paul ever says is, I was a Pharisee, my father was a Pharisee, my grandfather was a Pharisee. N.T. Wright suggests, and I suspect he was probably correct, that when Paul went back home, not only did the church in Jerusalem reject him, his own family rejected him. Following Yeshua of Nazareth, have you lost your mind? I sent you to be trained under Gamaliel, the president of the Sanhedrin, the grandson of the great great Rabbi Hillel. What are you thinking? Have you lost your mind? You have left Judaism to follow some crazy rabbi from Nazareth? What are you thinking? And can you imagine the young lady who had been waiting for so long for her rabbi husband to come back only to find out he's not a rabbi anymore. He's an outcast from the Jewish faith. And so when Paul writes, I wish I could be cut off. 
I think he had people's faces in his mind. A mom, dad, brothers, sisters, perhaps cousins. And it causes me to ask a very simple question. Who in your circle of influence needs a relationship with God through Jesus? I know some of you grieve. I know some of you have grieved for children. Children that you raised in the church. Children that you celebrated their baptism. Children that now, you don't know if they believe in God or not. Maybe grandchildren. Maybe a brother or a sister. I know when I ask myself that question, one face popped right in my mind. I think we all do. And, and, and I want to ask you a question. Does it grieve you when you realize that they're, they're not in a right relationship with God? It grieved Paul. It grieved him so much that he said, I'd give my own soul if they would come to know Jesus. So Paul begins with this incredible anguish. That it's got to make me think that when you go back to Romans chapter 8, and Paul talked about how that sometimes we don't know what to pray for. We don't have the words to pray for it. Look at the message. Meanwhile, the moment we get tired in the waiting, God's Spirit is right there alongside helping us along. If we don't know how or what to pray, it doesn't matter. He does our praying in and for us, making our prayers out of wordless sighs and aching groans. I mean, is that what Paul was talking about? Thinking about what he was fixing to talk about, his loved ones who did not know Jesus? Paul goes on in that chapter and he says, listen, it's not as though God's word has failed. He said, one of the things I've had to come to realize is not everyone descended from Israel or Israel. And again, if you read that sterile, you just don't appreciate what Paul's going through. I mean, Paul says, listen, not everyone who was born of a Jewish mother is a descendant of Abraham, is a descendant of Isaac, is a descendant of Israel. Just because you wear the name Israelite don't make you a real Israelite. In fact, he goes down and quotes Isaiah and he says, Isaiah cries out concerning Israel, though the number of the Israelites is like the sand of the sea. Millions! He says, only a remnant, only a few. Paul's going to focus on that here in a few moments. You see, Paul's trying to figure out in his head, and I think that's what he spent 10 years in Tarsus doing, he's trying to figure out in his head why a Jewish Messiah is rejected by their own people but accepted by the Gentiles. It doesn't make any sense. But watch what he does here. He says, what then shall we say? That the Gentiles who didn't pursue righteousness have obtained it, a righteousness that is by faith, but the people of Israel who pursued the law as the way of righteousness, have not attained it. The Gentiles are in. The Jews are out. Why? And look at what he says there at the end. Because they pursued it not by faith. They thought it was all about them. I've got to get all the commandments right. I've got to get all the laws right. I've got to make sure that I'm eating the right foods. I'm tithing the right things. I've got to get it right. Not God. Have we made the church about us instead of about him? Have we done the same thing the Jews have done? That, that now is all about us? 
instead of about Jesus Christ, whose name we wear? I mean, that's what Paul is groaning over. You Jews took the very law, the very Torah, that points to Jesus Christ, and instead of focusing on the Messiah, you turned it inwardly and focused it on yourself. Again, if we're not careful, it all becomes about rules and regulations, and they're not about a relationship with God. Now, does a relationship with God have rules and regulations? Of course it does. But it points to Him. Not to us. So in chapter 10, Paul begins. Look at what he says. Brothers and sisters, my heart's desire, prayer for God, is for the Israelites to be saved. He says, I can testify about them. They're zealous for God. Paul says, listen, I'm witness number one. Man, when, when, when Stephen was tried, I was the first one out there saying, give me your coach where you throw those rocks harder. I began to go to foreign cities arresting believers and then this Messiah, Jesus. Man, I know about zeal. And our people, they are a zealous people. But their problem is it's not based on knowledge. Look at him. Since they did not know the righteousness of God, they sought to establish their own and they did not submit to God's righteousness. What Paul is saying is when you read the Torah, if you're not careful, you only see what you want to see. He said, I was that way. Scripture after Scripture that pointed to a coming, suffering Messiah. He said, I didn't see it. And I have to think that it was after ten years of being in Tarsus and literally going over scroll after scroll after scroll that Paul looked at it and said, how have I missed this all of my life? And I don't know about you, but I find myself doing that quite often. How serious are you about being in God's Word? God's Word is this incredible source that if you open your heart to it, you see, you can approach Scripture in one of two ways. You can approach Scripture to back up what you already believe, or you can approach Scripture to have God to shape what you need to believe. Far too often we go to Scripture to back up what we already want to believe. Instead of say, God, what are you trying to teach me? And one of the things I've noticed over the years, if we just open ourselves up to the text, it's amazing what starts jumping off the text. Here in a few minutes, I'll be going out to River Bend to speak at, at, at the church service out there. And, and we're studying Mark chapter 10. And I'm looking at, at the text for our lesson today at River Bend, and it's just amazing what's jumping off the page that I've never seen before. I mean, God wants so much to reveal himself to us. In fact, look at what he goes on to say. Romans chapter 10, 9 and 10. He says, listen, if you can just learn the core, the heart of what it's about. Look at what he says. If you declare with your mouth Jesus is Lord and believe in your heart that God's raised him from the dead, you'll be saved. Paul said, can I bore it, bore it down just to the nitty-gritty? I mean, to the basics? It's about believing in Jesus and his resurrection, confessing him as Lord. Now, I know some of you are already thinking, but Leslie, there's far more to it than that. Of course there's far more to it than that. But Paul's trying to, trying to simply take us back to the beginning. And he says, listen, the first thing is to make the first thing the first thing. And the first thing is Jesus is the Christ who came and lived and died and was buried and was raised again the third day. And he's now Messiah and Lord at the right hand of God. Do you believe it? Will you confess it? And he says, if you will, 
then you're already going into righteousness. You're already moving into salvation. I love the, the, the words that are used here in the original Greek. It's literally the same thing that you get in Romans 6 where he says we're baptized into Christ. Here he says we are believed into salvation. We confess or are believed into righteousness. We confess into salvation. Beautiful language of how through Jesus Christ we're made right with God. And so he says, I was found by those who did not seek me. I revealed myself to those who did not ask for me. The Gentiles who didn't even know I was there, next thing you know, I'm, I'm reaching out to them and they're coming in and they're, they didn't seek me, I'm seeking them. That's why you and I are here today. I think all of us are Gentiles. But a God reached out to us even though we weren't reaching out to him and he sought us even though we weren't seeking him. And here we are today, followers of Jesus. And then he said, but concerning Israel, God says all day long I held out my hand to a disobedient, obstinate people. Paul couldn't figure it out. What's going on? Why is Israel rejecting him and why are the Gentiles receiving him? And so he gets real blunt with his Jewish brethren. He says, guys, we got to face it. We are a disobedient, obstinate, stubborn people. I read that and sometimes I think he knew me as well. I mean, sometimes we just, we just don't want God interfering in our lives. These are our lives. And God says, oh no, they're not. You're mine. I asked them, did God reject his people? He says, no. He says, I know that he didn't because I'm an Israelite. I'm a descendant of Abraham. I'm from the tribe of Benjamin. God hasn't rejected us. There's not many of us. And then Paul comes to a conclusion that's amazing. He says, did they stumble so as to fall beyond recovery? He said, no. He said, he said, the way I've got it figured out is that Israel has rejected their Messiah so that the doors might be open for the Gentiles to come in. And boy, they have. They're pouring in. You can see it there in Rome. And he says, God's hope is as the Gentiles come into the kingdom of God, the Jews will become jealous and at some point begin to turn back to God. And look at the verse 12. But if they're trans... It is. Paul, Paul, as he gets to the end of 11, he says, listen, it's like an olive tree. And God's been breaking off the branches that don't believe in him, and he's grafting in branches that do believe in him. He says, you, you Gentiles, don't you get arrogant. Don't you get arrogant at all if some of the branches have been broken off, and you, though a wild shoot, have been grafted in among the others and share in the nourishing sap from the olive root. Don't consider yourself superior. He kind of smacks these, these Gentile Christians who thought, we don't need you Jewish brethren anymore. He says, y'all, we all need all of us. And so he exposes both the Jewish and Gentile arrogance. All of this bickering, all of this arguing. We're going to see it literally here in the next two weeks. But Paul says, are y'all serious? When he gets to the end, he once again breaks out into this incredible praise. What began with tears falling to the ground. 
Paul says, can I just tell you, oh, the depths of the riches of the wisdom and knowledge of God, how unsearchable are his judgments, his path beyond tracing out. Who has known the mind of the Lord? Who's been his counselor? Who's ever given to God that God should repay him? For from him and through him and for him are all things, and to him be the glory forever. Amen. And with that, Paul says, it's time to get down to business. And that's what we'll see next week. You know, Paul, when he gets to the end, is basically saying a very simple thing. It's all about learning how to trust. And then from that faith to learn how to obey. You can still be a child of God the same way they were children of God. Through faith. In the resurrection of Jesus. Through confession of Him as Lord. And through being buried into that relationship where there is no condemnation. If you need to obey the gospel, why don't you do it right now? Together we stand and sing.